Hello and welcome back to Touching Base PR Edition. My name is Jamie Gerke and I'll be your host today. This is the podcast where I help aspiring communications professionals create the careers they dream of. Through fun interviews with top-notch PR and marketing pros, you're going to gain a wide understanding of the industry and know how to make your mark. Let's do it. All right, so today I have an interview with Dave Oates from PR Security Service. And this is actually such a great interview because Dave has such an interesting story. He started his journey into PR actually in the Navy. And so then we talk about just like how different experiences in life can guide you to different things. We talk about an MBA or other advanced degrees to see if like his perspective on them or if he thinks they're helpful. And we also talk about the skills to being in crisis PR. So definitely such a jam-packed episode with so many different things in it. But before we get into it, let's talk about my personal and professional highlights for the week. I'll talk personal first and I guess you... mm, I feel like this isn't totally personal because it is at one of my other jobs. It's not totally personal, but I'm counting it as one because it's not my PR job. So if you didn't know, I also work as a Hebrew school teacher um, and I kind of do library and tech and just a lot of like fun enrichment things. Um, I'm like the fun teacher. And so this week and last week, I've just been in the library a ton We've been cataloging the library and kind of organizing all the books to make it um, like a really accessible library so people can come on in and check out books, which is going to be so exciting. Um, so it's just been super fun because a lot of my friends do work at the Hebrew school with me. So I've been getting to hang out with them while cataloging the books. So it's been like this really like fulfilling experience. Um, and it just kept me like really, really fulfilled when the past few weeks at work have been a little bit harder because we're getting into the season. So jumping into my professional highlights, this past week was jam packed with volleyball. Monday, we did kind of like a lights off shoot in our arena that was mostly video so we could get stuff for our intro video. And then Wednesday, we did kind of like our media photo day where they did like the photos on like the white Um, screen background and also like green screen gifts and games so totally jam-packed week with volleyball I did finish our record book as well Um, so I'm feeling super good because at this point last year I was still so swamped I was barely made a dent in the record book and so I'm really excited because now next week we have our little staff reconnector event where we'll have breakfast and lunch and we do a kickball game and I missed that whole thing last year when it was actually so important that I was there because I would have been new and I needed to meet people but I missed it because I was literally swamped in the office all day doing volleyball record book and game notes and all of that so next week I can solely focus on game notes um, and then they have their first game on Friday so I'm very excited because I am just way ahead of where I was last year. So I'm feeling really good, really great. And overall, just like personal, professional life, A1, amazing, love, love, love. And so all that being said, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this episode with Dave Oates. Hi, I'm Dave Oates. I'm the founder of PR Security Service. We are a crisis communications management firm. We service a wide range of organizations, businesses, nonprofit government entities all across the United States and elsewhere. I love that. I feel like I never get to talk to anyone in like crisis PR. So this is such a fun experience. (laughs) Oh, thanks. (laughs) So like I said, we'll do a little bit of a hot seat first. So my first question for you 
is if you could travel anywhere in the world right now, where would you go and why? I would absolutely go. The first thing that came to my mind was Monterey, California, because I love it. But it's easy for me. I live in San Diego. I can get up there. So that's not really fair. I would truly love to get to Melbourne, Australia, and I have aspirations to do so next year. I'm a, I'm a proud member of Rotary International with some clubs down here, and our annual convention next year is in Melbourne. So I would love to go there, and, and I'm hoping I get a chance. That's so exciting. I've been telling people for years that I want to go to Australia, but mainly just because I want to see a kangaroo. But if I had to pick anywhere in the world that I would go right now, um, i probably pick Nashville because my best friend lives in Nashville, and she was up in New York a few weeks ago, and now I want to go see her in Nashville because she makes it sound so much fun. It, and my brother lived there for a number of years there. And the music scene, the food scene, and the culture scene is apparently just terrific. I've got some friends who live there, and I keep telling them I got to make a travel uh, yeah, plan there soon. Yeah. And I'm so my second question for you is with summer kind of wrapping up, it's almost the end of August, all right, which is crazy. We're halfway through August. Um, what has kind of been like your motto of the summer? What's been like your motto for this season? The motto for the year has been to maximize the joy in my life. And that goes not only in the stuff that I do for work, which I absolutely love, but in the people with whom I get to hang out with and do not just business related stuff or our profession or craft, but also in the service of others. I'm a big believer that karma is a legitimate currency. And the more you give to others, the more you get. It certainly has been a mantra in my life. And also when we're faced with adversity, I am really trying to instill in myself and certainly those around me that there's always a solution, even if that it means doing something different than what you're doing now. I see a lot of people that are uh, I'm associated with who face a problem and keep trying to tackle it in the same way and the results are the same. It doesn't go any further. That's the classic definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So let's try to find solutions for that. that that's the mantra for this year. And, and I'm hoping it carries with me in subsequent years. So what has been like your favorite thing you've done this year to like bring you joy? I got a chance to do a couple of things. Uh, on the service side, I was participating in a youth camp that my Rotary Club puts on for, we did for about 50, 50 or so high school juniors, free of charge, take them up to a campsite about an hour and a half uh, east, northeast of San Diego. Some of them have never seen campgrounds before in beautiful, lush, greener areas there. We put them in cabins. But we divide them up in teams and told them they had to, they had to develop a business plan. And, and, and in our reality, it wasn't about building a business. It was about giving them the confidence that they could be in a room with kids they've never met before in a place they've never been and develop a teamwork environment to, for a common goal that on something that they had no knowledge of two days prior. And in doing so, the teaching moment was the only thing holding you back is yourself. You can do anything you want to do if you put your mind to it. And that always gives me reward to do so. I learn as much from the students as, as, uh, as, I, as they hopefully do for me. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, I certainly learn more than I think I give them. And so that was one. And the second thing, I just came back about a month ago from a 10-day trip to the East Coast. I spent my teenage years in the Washington, D.C. area, and I got to see some friends and family members that, honestly, some of them I hadn't seen in 30 years. And to be able to see them face-to-face on something other than a little Facebook posting was a joy. And it was 
the weather was decent, uh, a little hot and humid, but otherwise it was great. And uh, I just had a blast the whole, the whole 10 days. So spending your teenage years on the East Coast and now being um, California-based, what do you kind of love about the East Coast versus the West Coast or the West Coast versus the East Coast? The, the East Coast has a infrastructure that allows you to get pretty much anywhere you need to on short notice, right? I didn't rent a car in the D.C. area. I was, uh, I, my hotel was in uh, Alexandria, Virginia, which is just right outside the district. I was a block from a subway station. I took the subway in. I popped Uber. I'm all around there. I, I could take the train up to the Northeast. I really like the fact that you can get anywhere pretty much uh, in public transportation or some easy transportation without ever owning a car. And, and I think that's something that the West Coast still struggles with, right? The thing I like about the West Coast, though, especially in Southern California nowadays is, number one, the weather is typically really good year round. And it's really awesome to be able to do anything you want to do outdoors any time of the year for pretty much, you know, pretty much at your discretion. And then the second thing is I really appreciate the fact that Southern California is now home to so many different people of so many different backgrounds and so many different creeds and colors and orientation and the ability to engage and interact with people in the service of others or just in casual conversation and hear their stories is something I absolutely love. The coolest thing I do about my job is I get to meet so many different, really spectacular people who may be in situations they never thought that they find themselves in, or maybe people who know people who are in there and they refer me in, but I get to meet I, and hear their stories and I get to do that all day long. And San Diego and Southern California is perfect for that. So switching into PR communications questions, can you start by sharing where you went to school, what you got your degree in? Yeah, I, I got my degree in something completely unrelated to PR. I, I, I guess you could say it was somewhat related, but really tangential. Uh, I went to the University of Maryland, got my undergraduate degree in political science, uh, but how I got into PR had everything to do with my Navy experience. So I was commissioned in the Navy. I was an ROTC uh, unit, and uh, after receiving my commission, I got a chance to be stationed out in San Diego, California. That's how I got out here and was assigned to uh, my first ship, a guided missile frigate, doing combat engineering roles, watch standing, typical stuff you see in the movies. But when you're a junior officer on a small ship, you get all of these ancillary collateral duties. And mine, among others, was the public affairs officer. And so I got to really understand, at least at a very baseline level early on, what it meant to do corporate communications at a forward deployed level, or at least you know on a, on a ship level, and realized I loved it. And then through networking and pestering senior officers that I found out were in public affairs as their full-time job in the Navy, of which it was a very small community, only about 200 officers out of something like 55, 56,000 officers in the Navy did that. I figured out how to apply for a transfer. It took me three times. Third time was the charm in about 18 months to get selected as a Navy public affairs officer. They sent me to a two-month immersion school back at Fort Meade, Maryland, came back to San Diego and did a whole bunch of things in forward deployed operations, served on aircraft care for two years. I was in Haiti as a spokesperson for joint military operation several other things. And, and that's how I got in the profession. Had nothing to do with my with my undergraduate. So I definitely also love hearing that because so I got my undergrad degree in English, which is somewhat related to PR, like you can really spin it, but was totally not. I never, when I went into college, I didn't envision going into PR. I started college off as a science major. And then I ended up in English because yeah. it was like the best possible option for me. So 
definitely I love hearing about how different majors can kind of play into um, PR. So what do you think you learned from your political science degree that you use in PR? The, the one thing that I will say helped me, and I think it's true for a lot of the, a lot of the liberal arts degrees, is they, they require you to learn how to think critically and to back up your statements, your beliefs with facts. So making sound, reasonable conclusions based on data that you have and be able to articulate that in a way that gets others to uh, to buy into your decision. You're not going to convince everybody, but at least to make a sound, rational argument. And I certainly think I learned that not only with my political science degree, but I think I learned that just in general with my, with my college experience. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, Jamie, that anybody who says that I'm going to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life from a professional standpoint at the age of 18 or whatever, when I declare my major and I'm going to graduate from that and then move on, I, I just think it's unrealistic. You, you haven't experienced life. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 53 in a couple of months. And I will tell you, when I left at the age of 20, I was turning 22 when I graduated college. I, I lived longer post-college than I had pre-college. And, you know, life has a way of, of creating opportunities for you. And if you're, if you're not so bogged down with what you think is, is a path that you must take or a situation that you have to see through and not look around every now and then and say, there's a big world out there. And what are my passions? What do I want to do? My mom has a great line, do what you love, the money will come. And, and sometimes that's just a nonlinear direct approach based on the opportunities present itself. And you take a leap of faith and you go for it and, and stuff starts to click. But it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s before I realized this is what I wanted to do. And even since then, right, now that I'm focused purely on crisis PR, I didn't think that was even a real possibility until maybe about five, six years ago. And now reality was probably 10 years ago. So I wish I'd done it as early as that, where I could focus only on crisis communication. Um, but, you know, that took me till now. And I'm having the time of my life. I'm, I'm, I literally could not envision doing anything else right now from a job because it's not work. It's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like it's so natural to kind of change what you want to do as you kind of get to experience more and more things. I know for myself, I knew it. I figured out I wanted to do PR communications. And yeah. so I had gotten a social media internship on my campus um, because of something available. I was like, I love social media going into it. And after two months, I was like, I absolutely hate this internship. I do not want to be here. And I ended up quitting the internship. And now so much of the job I'm doing is social media focused. And I'm trying to get more into social media. And it was like three years ago, I literally quit an internship because I hated social media. I think that's the interesting thing about life, right? It, it's never constant. And <laughs> we all tend to learn what we like and what we don't like in certain phases of our life that then years later, we may actually change our minds, right? Different experiences. And, and to your point, I remember as a young public affairs officer, social media wasn't even a thing. I, I left the Navy active duty 2000. Facebook didn't really become mainstream until about 2008. So eight years later, this was not even a, a, a real platform. And when it became one, none of us in PR thought that it would take the place of the traditional news outlets. We, we said, this is a great tool. This is really engaging. This is, this is really valuable. But we saw it as a 
added value and not what it is now, which is along with Twitter and TikTok and Snap and you know Instagram are the dominant way most people, particularly younger demographics, get their information. So I, in my, in my current job, spend a great deal of time helping organizations that have a crisis event occurring that never sees the local news, let alone the national traditional news outlets. It's all residing on online reviews, blogs, influencer, uh, social media accounts, and it's taken them out of their operations, their reputations being called into question. There's uh, just a big bevy of, of different uh, stressors that are causing their sales to drop, profitability to erode, and employees to walk out. Never seeing the light of day of traditional news. It's all residing thanks to these little devices that we all carry around that makes everybody a broadcaster. You know, you told me 15 years ago that was going to be a thing. I would have said probably not. Well, how wrong were we, right? And so kind of walk me out of graduating college, going to the Navy, and now ending up where you are today. What did that whole journey look like? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, it looked, it, it, I guess in the rearview mirror, it all looks like it makes sense. I remember the first time I had to actually communicate to 10 other sailors, all of whom were my age or older, but I'm the officer in charge of this anti-submarine warfare division. And I'm trying to communicate with them as an effective leader and trying to get them to buy off. And they're skeptical as all get out. Who's this kid? What does he know? He's never been on a ship before. Barely can find out where, where, his, where, his, you know, where his bed is, let alone anything else. What does he know? And, and having to basically find a way to communicate and make sure everybody has buy off and they knew that I had their back. And then even when I was doing public affairs work, I was still learning how to communicate to employees, I had this job for about 18 months with, uh, with a training command where I had to go on ships as a young officer, qualified in surface warfare now, but a young officer who's now gonna go on other ships with a, train, with a training group and tell the commanding officer who's got 15 to 20 years more experience than I did, who's leading on there, that um, your ship is deficient in these areas and we gotta go fix that there. And I have, I'm a young kid trying to tell this senior guy mm -hmm. that his ship needs some work. And you have to do it in a way that, uh, that actually gets them to buy into it and doesn't look at you like the bad guy. And, and that took some doing to do so, right? That took, some, that took some training. That took some school hard knocks. That took me not communicating well in the beginning and learning as I go. And I, so, you know, but at the time, it all looks like just one big hot mess. Like, how did you get from that to PR, let alone crisis PR? But all of these events that we have in our lives have meaning. Like in the bag rearview mirror, I'm like, well, of course I went into those positions. That helps me in the crisis situation to be able to communicate well. And, and, and that's the key lesson, right? It, it, it doesn't, it's not linear. And it certainly isn't something that you're going to find on a syllabus or you're going to find in a classroom. But over time, the nuggets of information and the experiences that we have, as difficult as they may be at the time, have meaning, have values. Every step of our life's journey is by design. It doesn't mean, and I don't mean to, to get religious because I, I certainly don't believe I'm, uh, I'm religious, I'm spiritual, but I do think everything happens for a reason. If only to teach us a lesson that we need to move on to whatever's next. And that means sometimes, you know, it just looks like a big golden jigsaw puzzle. Just it's all over the place and it doesn't make a lot of sense at the time. But once you put all the pieces together, you're like, oh, I get it. So enjoy the journey. Stuff will start to make sense 
down the road in the rearview mirror. Just enjoy the journey, enjoy the life's lessons. If you're not happy, find a way to around it to make happy or, or change the dynamic and, uh, and enjoy the learning process of life. I definitely agree. Like everything happens for a reason. And like, once you realize like this, once you realize something, you're like, oh, everything makes sense. And I always think back to um, probably like my junior year of college when I was officially like, okay, I'm going to do PR. Here's what we're doing. One of my college friends looked at me and she goes, you know, when you first came to school, you said doctor. And I was like, absolutely not. No way. And then you're like, mm, maybe teacher. And, 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 you know, I was like, mm, I could maybe, maybe see that one. And then you said PR and I was like, ding dong, that's it. You know, I love that. And th there's a balancing act, right? You don't want to keep changing as every time the wind shifts, like you do want to have a path to somewhere. Right. So you don't need to necessarily get bogged down with the day-to-day -day stuff. But I also don't think you need to necessarily prescribe what the rest of your life is going to be at a young age. I'm not too sure I'm prescribing what the rest of my life is going to be in my early 50s now. I'd like to think that I've got a chance to live a few more decades. And who knows what that life will bring? Somebody who had asked me actually just this morning in a, in a virtual networking group that I belong to said, if you couldn't do your current job, what would you do? And I said, executive chef. I would love to be an executive chef of a big restaurant. And they're like, well, how do you cook? I was like, I'm a home cook. I love to cook, but I don't like know all the all the intricacies of how to operate a kitchen and all do that sort of stuff. But it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. And maybe if there's a chance for me to do that at some point, that would be kind of cool. And uh, and and maybe halfway through, I'm going to go, hey, you know, maybe maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this isn't something I want to do. I, I just I I I think it's just foolhardy to think that. We've experienced so much already in life that we're that there's nothing else to explore and to be open. And I think when you don't avail yourself to those opportunities and those experiences and to then determine how and what you want to do with the rest of your life, you're cutting yourself short. Life is life is all about experiences. Yeah. And I think it's so funny because I used to be so like five-year plan, 10-year plan. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And now it's like, I have a year left of my master's program and people are constantly asking me, so what are you going to do in May when you graduate? And I'm like, it's a great, great question. <laughs> like, I have no idea. I, I, I spent, I, I graduated from college in 1991. I went back for my master's degree to get my MBA in 2002, a year, almost two years. Actually, I entered the classroom almost two years after I left the Navy. And, and the reason was that because I was experiencing so much other stuff that I just, I didn't see where it fit into to my plan. It did after a while. And the MBA allowed me to basically, because I had aspirations to be in the executive suite of a, a company as a marketing director and then, um, as a, or as a head of marketing. And then I had aspirations also to run my own consulting shop. And I thought the, the MBA would help round out what my other skills were. Uh, and that that actually came true. And I, and I did both. I spent just about two years, uh, a little over two years as the head of marketing in the executive suite of a software company in Northern San Diego County. It was about hundred, hundred employees, uh, strong, had, to, had a blast doing it. Company got sold. Uh, and I decided to launch my own consulting practice. So I've been able to do both from that one there, so but it, you know, that was in 2002. If you'd asked me 11 years earlier, was that even in the plans? PR wasn't even in the plans, right? Right. <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a thought, right? It was just based on experiences, let alone that I was going to run my own shop. So, yeah. 
So let's talk about that MBA for a second. I want to know what is your opinion on the MBA? Do you think it's worth it? And what do you think you learned the most from it? The the only way an advanced degree works, in my opinion, whether it's an MBA or a master's in communications or PR or, or any other degree, is if you have an idea about how you want to use it. I don't think it works if one of two things are present. One is if you're trying to get a master's degree in essentially the same discipline as your undergraduate degree, save the money. Don't take out the student loan for that. So let's say you got an undergraduate in communications or in PR, and you decide that you want to go get a master's degree in marketing, just in marketing. I'd say it's a waste of time because they're going to be so similar in the disciplines. You've already learned what you have to do. And I also think you want to get some experience in between that will cover whatever it is there. So if you want to get uh, if you want to get an advanced degree, have it in something that will complement another skill set, will give you additional skill sets and will accelerate your path to whatever it is. The second thing don't get a degree for is if you think that the degree in and of itself by alone will get you more money from uh, from a job. It won't. It might actually be debilitating. It might actually hurt your chances to get hired because you, especially if you get a degree, uh, an advanced degree, like a master's right after your undergraduate, if you go from undergraduate right into your master's degree, and it's not because you're going into med school or law school or something like that, I'd say don't do it because the biggest, the biggest value to an employer. And I think to, to, you know, yourself is getting out there and experiencing life. The person with the most experience wins and you really don't know what it is you're going to want to do for the next three, five years, let alone the rest of your life until you actually get out and do it. Get outside the classroom, get outside the internships, go out there. Yeah, you may not have the best job leaving college. No one does, by the way. First job is just that, is your first job. Mm-hmm. Learn as you go, experience life, the, the hard knocks, the scrapes, the cuts, the bruises, whatever. You're going to pick yourself up. And if you can pick yourself up quickly and move forward and learn from the experiences, find the joy in it, and then figure out where to go from there, life will start to make sense. But it's not in the classroom by itself. It just is not. Yeah. And so for, I know a lot of, so I was a 2020 grad, but I was a December 2020 grad. So I was a little bit later, Okay. but I know a okay. lot of 2020, then 2021 grads, a lot of people ended up just in master's programs right away because no one could find jobs. We were like, what are we supposed to do? And so I know for me, what kind of happened was that I want to be in athletic communications and the best way to get into um, especially like college athletics is by being a grad assistant first. So basically I'm a grad assistant in communications and I'm getting my master's in sport management, but I don't think I'm actually learning anything in my master's program. But, but, but that's a really good point, right? So you're leveraging the grad, you're leveraging the grad assistant for practical application. And oh, by the way, you're going to get a degree in addition to that. I, I think that's fine, right? Because it's more about the practical application and the experience of being in a graduate athletic, you know, communication system and doing that there. It's like the coach, you know, somebody who's a player, uh, you know, we'll use that analogy because I'm a big, by the way, I'm a big San Diego State alumni. It's where I got my MBA. Um, there was a, a lauded uh, running back by the name of DJ Pumphreys who left college, went into the pros for a few years, had his pro, pro year. He just signed on as a graduate assistant for San Diego State. Now, he's going to get his master's program. He's going to get his master's. He finishes undergrad. He's going to get his master's program. But he's a grad assistant because he wants to coach 
right. the collegiate environment. So he's a grad assistant working in the coaching staff, learning how to coach. And he's going to do that for theoretically a season or two, and then maybe get hired if he's succeed, you know, if he's successful enough, get hired, if not San Diego State, somewhere else on the coaching staff. So there's a means to an end for that one. That's how that type of program works. So I get it. Um, but for a lot of people who, let's say general communications, who feels like they are not qualified enough to go find their first good job, well then say, well, I'll just go get my master's in communications. And I say, please do not take out another dollar student loan debt to do that. That is, that is just not going to be beneficial to you. First off, you've already got a communications degree. Don't get a second one. That's really not valuable. And, and secondly, here's the newsflash. No one is ready to, the, mm -hmm. to qualify for their first real job. We all don't know what we're supposed to do. That's just the reality of it. I Hopefully, you secured some internships or at least some externships, even if they're free, they're not paid for right. anything. You know, Just get out there and experience some stuff to know if you like that. And then your first job, as I said, your first job is your first job. And you're going to learn about the do's and don'ts and the cuts and scrapes and all this sort of stuff there. And if you're able to pay the bills and figure out what's next, awesome. Because through these experiences, you'll have that moment where you know where to apply it. And, and guess what? You'll, you know, maybe 10 years later, you'll change your, you know, you'll evolve to something else. And 10 years after that, you do. I certainly have experienced that and I'm grateful for it. It's just, I think it's so funny because you have to like find different ways to leverage things. So it's like, people ask me, they're like, how's your master's program going? Like they're so interested in my master's program. And I'm like, okay, right. here's the deal. I got an A minus in communications, which is what I do for a living, but I got an A plus in finance, which is something I know absolutely nothing about. So that's how my master's program is going. Ask me how my job is going because that's where I'm actually learning. Yeah, I, I look, I, I learned a lot um, in, my, in the MBA on, I couldn't read a balance sheet or a profit loss statement prior to going into the MBA. I, I did, just didn't have that experience. And, and I'm grateful for that because it allows me to know what questions to ask. But if somebody says, well, then, I now took, you know, two, two, three courses in accounting as part of my MBA, and I can read a balance sheet, a profit loss statement, and a statement of cash flow. That makes me a CFO. That, uh, uh, no, um, let's just say not in chance. Like, I am not at all qualified for that. But I know what questions to ask as I go about my other craft, and that's, and that's important. Right. So now, switching gears from schooling to working what do you kind of do on like a day-to-day -day basis or like, I guess like a weekly basis since every day I know is going to be different. And especially with crisis PR, like when things come up, things come up. So this is the cool part of my job, right? If you look at my average week, about 15% is working on intense client communications crises. So I am the guy people call, as I say it affectionately, when crap hits the fan. Um, I mean, use something a little more colorful than crap, but you get the point. And, and that is because there's a reporter calling or there's something that's going viral on Instagram or Snap, or there is something brewing that has an executive of a company, uh, a chairman of a nonprofit, uh, an agency head of a government entity or something like that, concerned that the reputation that they worked so hard to achieve is now going to crumble and they're going to be persona non grata, the business might fold, the nonprofit may have to cease operation, or this person's going to lose their job in the government office. And so I get to come in there, understand what are the issues, what are the opportunities, where, you, where are they looking to fix whatever it is, the fundamental issue 
even if that fix is simply not to miscommunicate anymore and be able to offer a path that allows them to do so. But that on a regular daily or weekly basis, I guess to borrow your point, is probably about a day and a half or two days out of the five days. The rest of the time, I want to be top of mind to people who have, who know people who have a similar issue when stuff's going down, whether it's in employee relations, CEO malfeasance, customer product issues, operational issues, or one of those big disasters you hear about, natural disasters, fires, whatever. I'm the guy that I want people to remember. And so what I do to keep top of mind is I do a lot of what we're doing here is talking to people in person and virtually, hearing their stories, talking about what they do, and trying to find opportunities where I can connect them. Because I know if I do that, they in turn will keep me top of mind when a friend or a colleague or themselves get into a situation where their reputation is being called into question online or in the press and social media, and I'm the guy that, uh, that can help them fix that. And it's the best part of my job. I, I literally tell people I spend two thirds of it hanging out with cool people and hearing their stories. And I love every minute of it. So talking crisis PR, especially with government entities, how many NDAs do you think you sign on like a yearly basis? Oh, geez, uh, it's a dozen to probably three dozen. Um, and, and understandably so. And, and look, I treat all conversations with clients confidential. It doesn't mean that I don't give them straight, you know, straight advice and straight counsel in private. But I get that signing the NDA gives them assurances that I certainly value the information that they're giving and recognize the sensitivity of it. Because there's a big trust factor when somebody brings me in, especially if they haven't known me before. It's usually at the recommendation of a colleague that they know, a friend, somebody that they trust, and that person's extending that trust to me. So if signing an NDA gives them that added assurance that I take that seriously, that's more than fine by me. I don't have any problem with that. And I think it's also just the nature of the business. I usually come in at moments where the anxiety level is high. Mm -hmm. the, the fears are great as to whether this entity is going to continue and whether this person's reputation is forever tarnished. So, um, yeah, that, that's about right. Yeah. Probably I think one to three dozen. Yeah. One to three dozen. I think about that when I first started this show, one of my friends was like, you should get like a White House press secretary on your show. And I was like, they're not going to tell me anything. Oh, no. If you're looking for insights on some of my clients. Now, now I do. I, I will say there are, there are in, in, my, in, in my job, there are opportunities to talk about my clients, especially if the information is out there in the public domain, right? There's a news article on there. Or there's something. And I can point to them and say, that's a client. This is what it is. I, I will leave out some of the conversations that I have internally as to the strategy of how we will respond, when we will respond, using what tone, what tenor, and what vehicles. Um, I, or I, I will leave out at least part of that if the debates, have, if there have been strong debates internally. But, um, but you can see oftentimes in the public, because I get called in as to what we did, and, and then it's just a matter of saying why. And probably the why is where I get I'll get very general, but I won't get into specifics because it, it entails a lot of inside discussion that are that's confidential. Right. So talking crisis PR, what do you think is kind of the biggest skill someone needs to work in crisis PR? There's two things that I would say. The first is you've got to be able to be calm in the face of crisis. The people with whom you interact are often very stressed. They're anxiety laden. And they, they don't have the capacity to listen to a long, drawn-out, detailed answer. 
So if you're a person who just sort of likes to pontificate and showcase your expertise and, you know, it's, it's probably not a good thing when you're talking to them because they don't have the capacity for that. All they're hearing is noise. The second thing is you need to be able to respond to your client, but also help your clients respond to their employees, their customers, their partners, the general public, the press with empathy and action. And when doing so, I don't mean to say that being empathetic means you have to admit culpability, admit wrongdoing the things that you didn't do, but it does mean you have to recognize that the people who are shouting and screaming at you on social media, on an influential blogger in the press are doing so because they feel voiceless. They feel disenfranchised. They do not see the connection and more to the point, they think you're actually purposefully doing it, or at least is ne are negligent in, in your actions that allowed it to happen, and they are not happy. So you have to acknowledge to say, I hear what you're saying. I know you're upset. I appreciate you bringing this to our attention. Here are the things that we're doing to hopefully rectify that. Here's also some things that we're doing to fix whatever the fundamental issue is. We're going to try to do this better. We appreciate it. Call if you need anything. And if you do that well, and you do that quickly, because you have to you have to respond quickly. You don't have all day. You have an hour if something is brewing online because it can go viral. If you don't if you don't act with empathy and action, rising above the noise to be calm and do so quickly, if you can, if you can do all that, if you can do all that, the, the the situation will diffuse pretty quickly. People will give you the benefit of the doubt. Will allow you a little space to get back to normal operations and fix whatever the issues. If you do it wrong, if you're argumentative or you're late in responding or uh, you say something that just sounds like lawyer speak or gobbledygook. All you're going to do is you're going to raise the tension. You're going to raise animosity. And this whole crisis communication event will extend far longer than necessary and could be extraordinarily detrimental. And so if you're looking to hire someone and bring them on, what is the kind of like your favorite interview question to gauge if they gauge if they have those skills? Um, I, I asked him to tell me about a situation in which they were personally stressed and how they got themselves out of it. And, and I don't ask a lot more than that. And so it could be, you know, a professional manner. It could be, quite frankly, a personal manner. And I, I don't I don't want to get into people's private lives if, if they don't want to go there. But people who can who can respond well in stressful situations. Uh, can do well in this job. And it requires a real inner peace that, um, look, and, and I, you know, everybody's got their triggers, right, as they call them. Everybody's got something that will set them over because of some something that occurred in, you know, in their childhood or early on in their profession or something in that area. So I don't want to sound all high and mighty, but if you rec if you can recognize that and you can and you can manage through that and still do your job, um, you're probably suited for this gig. I know a lot of PR people, people who, with whom I respect, who say, I never want to do crisis PR. You're the guy that I will refer that to. And I'm grateful for that because I say, and I'm of, the, I'm of an age and a, an experience where I don't want to do the promotional stuff. I'm going to refer that back to you all day. I love what I do because we know what, what we like and what we don't like. And if we, are, if we are cognizant of that, I think in any sort of life, if we can, if we're cognizant of who we are, of what we do, how we do it, and why, and are comfortable with that, then we need to be in situations that allow us to succeed, you know, play to our strengths. And, uh, and that requires some pretty decent self-reflection.
self-evaluation. And so talking about referrals and getting clients from other people, I want to talk a little bit about networking. And so what is kind of your biggest piece of advice for networking? I I call it the three B's, B-E, as in the verb to be. Uh, And that is to be yourself. First off, you can't fake being yourself. So don't go walk in there and pretend and act like someone you're not or you think because somebody needs to hear it or see it in a certain way. I mean, there's degrees of mannerisms. And again, you have to learn how to communicate in a way that everybody buys into that. But don't put it on an air or a personality that isn't authentic to you. Be yourself as the first one there. The other thing is to be inquisitive. If you are giving, if you are giving your resume and talking more than anybody else in a room networking, you're doing it wrong. Your job is to ask the questions. Because when you ask the right questions, you will find not only opportunities for yourself, but opportunities for others to make connections. And that's the value of networking, is finding different things, hearing their stories, building rapport, but then also connecting the dots. You know, that's an, you know who I think you should meet? You should meet you know, Jill over here, or Layla, or whomever, Elaine, and, and, and I think they would be really good for you to connect because I think you got a lot of synergies between the two. So be be inquisitive, ask the questions. And the third is to be sure to follow up. A text, a letter, I mean, cards are still big because no one writes them anymore. A phone call, an email, something that appreciates the time somebody took to meet with you. And those those are the cardinal rules. I don't care what the industry is. I don't care what the business is. I don't care what the event is. Be, be yourself, be inquisitive, and be sure to follow up are the mantras for any networking event. And so I think a lot of times I feel like I get a lot of questions asking me about following up. And I think people get scared of following up. They don't want to seem like pushy. And someone told me once, like, you want to connect with your connections at least three times a year. And so what is like your biggest thing for like following up with someone? How do you stay connected to someone once you've already connected? You know, what I typically do is I connect with them on LinkedIn, particularly in the business circle. So I've had uh, an event that I met three people, you know, and I remember their names by the end of that week, I'm sending them a LinkedIn invite. And then if you've ever, if you work on LinkedIn, when you ask for connection requests, it'll come with saying, add a note. And I usually add a note like, hey, it was great seeing you at this and this event. I really appreciated when you talked about this. I hope to stay in touch through this vehicle and others, you know, otherwise I hope to, and, and I hope to see you soon. So nothing, you know, it doesn't have to be anything more than that. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, uh, try to make up stuff that you're not. But if you notice, you know, I said, first off, it's nice to meet you, right? I appreciate the time you spent. Here's a couple of takeaways I got from you. And let's stay in touch. And LinkedIn too, if you're active on LinkedIn with posts and things like that, they'll see it their feed, you stay right. top of mind. And hopefully you'll do the same. You check your feed. Oh, look, a so-and-so nice post. Or, hey, this person just got a new job. Hey, this thing, congratulations. Be active on it. But yeah, that's how I normally do it for them. Awesome. And so kind of, I just have one more question to wrap it sure. all up. And so if you could go back and do your whole journey all over again, is there anything that you would change or do differently? My default... Uh, to you is to say no, I wouldn't do it differently. Although that's not really true. I there's I have a book in my head that I want to get out there, and I would say, in general, the premise is, don't be afraid to try. I wish I had tried more earlier in life, and I think we can all 
relate to a situation where we didn't step up to the plate, proverbially speaking, and take a swing at something because we talked ourselves out of it. We, we alone said, we're not good enough. We don't have the skill sets. We're not qualified. What if this goes wrong? And those are all debilitating statements that we make to ourselves without realizing that the only one who's telling us we can't do something is us, is our own self. The mind is an amazing, powerful tool because it can talk you out of anything. And this world, this life is about trying. We have such a disparate focus on the success rate. And we judge ourselves too much on that because it's not about how many times you win versus how many times you lost. It's about how many times you tried. That's the only litmus test that matters. How many times you tried and when you didn't succeed, it's not a failure, it just means you didn't succeed. What did you do to try to do that to, to, to succeed? And oh, by the way, if you did exactly the same thing that you did before and still didn't succeed, there's a reason for that because you didn't try something new, right? And I think that's that's the secret to life, not just a professional career, whatever that is. Baseball is my first love, and I, I use this analogy all the time. Uh, I, I I'm not you know I'm not skilled enough to be a professional by any stretch, but think about the professional that is. And when they go up to the plate, the best hitter in baseball has a batting average that reads .350 or something close to that, which means it's a, it's a it's a, you know it's a decimal, right? .35. It's another way of saying 35%. Right. So think about it. The best hitter in Major League Baseball, the person making a gazillion dollars a year, walks to the plate knowing statistically that they have a two-thirds chance of not succeeding in their primary job, and that is to get a base hit. And yet, this is the secret. They have the audacity that after they strike out, fly out, ground out, they walk back to the dugout knowing that within three innings, if not earlier, they got to get up and they got to try again. Mm -hmm. That is the secret to life. Not how many times you get a base hit. It's how many times you step up to the plate. I how many times you get up and that. try it again. Yeah. I love that because the motto that I have currently been living by is that everything that happens is good for the plot. Um, and so I think about it like when you're reading a novel, there are all these like random things that happen in a novel. Like she'll go to the grocery store. Nothing eventful happens at the grocery store. Or she finds a dog. Nothing eventful happens when she finds the dog, but all of a sudden there's this whole story and like, there's all these good things, all these bad things. And it's like, I, oh, I just keep telling myself like nothing bad can happen. Like it's just an addition to the plot. Oh, a hundred percent, hundred percent. The failures come when you don't try. Right. When you fail is because I didn't step up. I talked myself out of it. I didn't step up to the plate. Right. I didn't swing the bat. And so thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing your story and sharing your tips and your tricks. It was so great having you on the show. Jamie, thanks so much. I wish you all the best in your continued career in academic and thank professional you. as well as your audience. Thanks for the time. Thank you.